Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. everybody welcome back to excuse me may i have some more we are the foodcast with an insatiable appetite i am brad kramer and i am joined as always by christine strubel hey christine hi brad happy national beer day the day we're recording this so pop open a cold one yeah the next beer i have will be the first so i don't (laughs) think that's going to be happening well, you know, it's opening day and National Beer Day, and maybe you can have some Cracker Jill instead of Cracker Jack. And it is, as I say, it's opening day for Major League Baseball when we're recording, so that all ties in. And I'm I'm totally down for the Cracker Jacks, but I'll pass on the beer. Well, th- didn't you see, since we're you know going to be talking to three women today, that Cracker Jack came out with Cracker Jill. Uh, helping to support women in sports, and they're going to be selling the uh, new the bags of Cracker Jack with women on the front of it at Major League Baseball parks across the U.S. this baseball season to give a little more representation to women in uh, sports and food culture. And what a good idea that is, especially coming off uh, Women's History Month. Which, ironically, this episode that we are recording now and about to drop featuring three amazing, talented women, was going to drop in March during Women's History Month. But you and I both were under the weather and were unable to coordinate our health schedules to record. So the three women that you mentioned that we wanted to uh, share in March, we are dropping in April, but uh, the interviews are uh, no less entertaining and engaging. And those conversations are with Danin Arkinis, who is the executive producer and showrunner for Top Chef, which has recently just kicked off season 19, Top Chef Houston. And one of the hosts slash main judges on Top Chef, uh, Gail Simmons. And our third interview is with Cara Nicoletti, who is a female butcher that has a fascinating uh, journey and a story that she shares with me. And that's a fun conversation. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about her Seymour meats and veggies leading into that interview. And also because um, they sponsored our last episode and uh, we'll be mentioning a special offer for Seymour meats and veggies again in this episode before we're done. So um, the, the women theme I'm always down for, and the fact that uh, you mentioned National Beer Day and uh, Cracker Jills and 
Major League Baseball season starting, everything just seems to tie into a nice, neat little package. So thank you for that. No problem. I'm here to help sometimes. Christine, in her role as Grand Poobah of um, foodsided.com, is often the recipient of new products and has the ability to try new products so that she can then write about them. The uh, Cracker Jills being one of them that she just mentioned. You have recently written about a couple others that I wanted to touch on real quick because, A, obviously I have not had access to them. And frankly, neither are very appealing to me. So I was going to open the floor to you and let you talk about them. Um, the first is, and you'll have to share a little background into this for, the, for people listening. By the way, I should mention, this wonderful foodcast that we do is now heard by people in 32 countries. So that's pretty fun and uh, pretty nice to know. So to everybody listening, thank you. Um, please subscribe if you haven't already, because this, sh- this entertainment is free and there's more entertainment than uh, anybody should be allowed to have in, in one sitting. So thank you for listening wherever you are and uh, please subscribe and keep joining us. But anyway, um, back on topic, the Hellman's dessert mayonnaise that okay, you that wrote about. The- that was an April Fool's joke. If you okay. didn't, yeah, I, okay. I was, <laughs> or it could be true. I mean, well, in, it could be true. World... And I was, I was trying to open the floor to to see how long you would play that out. But okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't. You know, it's one of those things. I could not actually, in good faith, say that a p- Butterfinger may- mayonnaise could actually be on store shelves now. Granted, each year, all the April Fool's jokes do kind of become a little more rooted in potentially truthful. You know, it's that fine line of what what people are willing to try. I mean, you know, look at, as you mentioned, we have listeners from all over the world. You know, some people like banana ketchup. Uh, I, it's not something that really I fathom or, you know, there's people in... Uh, Central and South America that eat menthol candy and think it's tasty when I think of it as like a cough lozenge. Yep. But yeah, when, you know, your throat hurts. So yes, there is a little, you know, could there actually be a chocolate mayonnaise? Maybe. But if you look at that article, they actually had a quite tasty recipe that uses mayonnaise. Um and for fans of Portillo's, the, you know, iconic Chicago-based restaurant with their, you know, Chicago dogs and uh, Italian cheese sandwiches, that chocolate cake is made with mayonnaise because it keeps, my favorite word when talking about food, it keeps cakes moist. And I have seen that before in chocolate cake recipes, so that doesn't surprise me. But as a April Fool's joke and as a spread to open a jar of... Uh, dessert Hellman's mayonnaise I, th- I thought was very very clever and creative and it becomes increasingly difficult each year to find April Fool's jokes or gimmicks that are actually amusing I think uh, creativity seems to run shorter by the year so that I thought that was a good one uh, and and there were a couple other ones I think Budweiser's seltzer brand with the way way retro uh, ones that were kind of a play on old England, you know, a popular Netflix show. I think those were cute. Um, 
some of the other ones you just kind of you, you just roll with sure who's yeah there's there's a broccoli chapstick um apparently some people didn't get my humor on my roundup and they thought that it was real and they didn't my, um see my sarcasm in my commentary but you know if if you want a broccoli chapstick <laughs> by all means enjoy that Ooh. now I'm the subject of a real new product that also is very unappealing to me. And this again is a mashup of two things that I love separately, but as one just does not float my boat at all. You recently wrote about the blueberry muffin Kit Kat bar. I love blueberry muffins. I love Kit Kat bars. It's in my top three or four candy bars, but that just, Something about that combination just sounds like a, a big giant no for me. You know, um, actually, it's it, it's really good. I mean, th there's one aspect of it that they played up a little bit, which is like it's supposed to have, you know, how on a blueberry muffin, you have the crumble or a good blueberry muffin. You have a crunchy muffin top or a crumble. The streusel. Drusel, okay. Um, that <laughs> little bit is supposed to be in Drusel. Drusel. I'm sorry, I'm not German. Um, <laughs> but you know, you that that element was a little lost. But the the cream on the outside would be really good on a blueberry muffin with the streusel. And I will say, when you open the package, it smells like a freshly baked blueberry muffin it doesn't have like the the baking spices aroma but that blueberry scent that you want is there now is the color really a pretty vibrant lavender blue that you expect from a blueberry muffin not really maybe it could be a little different but i think well, this it's a food product it's not like tim gunn designed it well but but we all want pretty food no, we want tasty it, food. Yes, but at the same time, we want tasty. When we're talking food. about candy bars, we're not eating with our eyes anymore. We're just grabbing and, and and grubbing. Well, some of us who are trying not to eat copious amounts of candy bars because it's almost almost beach season, um, want to look at it and think about, okay, I can have this amount of X and it'll still fit into um, the rest of my eating for the day. So may, some of us still kind of look and wait and not just overindulge but back to what i was saying it, it, this one comparatively to some of the other fruit forward flavors that they had it, it is is successful um comparatively to like the raspberry one that they had uh for spring a couple of years ago you know, that one was really really sweet um and wasn't, I don't know if it was as good, hmm. um, but you know, I, I give them credit for trying something different. I like the apple pie better than I like the blueberry muffin. Um, they had that like last summer. I think that was that with ice cream would be really good. I think even this one with ice cream could work over this in the, you know, for more summer months or even put it on a vanilla cream cake with like an actual, you know, white, white vanilla cake with some buttercream and put the candies on top for like a summer dessert with like blueberries in the middle could really work well. 
And for those of you listening to this uh, foodcast and who haven't picked up on it by now, but you can tell Christine has devoted a great deal of thought to different applications of this uh, blueberry muffin Kit Kat bar. Clearly has devoted time to its many potential uses. Well, I, I, as you can tell, I have a little too much time on my hands. So before we get into our first interview, speaking of fun topics, and you know, it's one of my favorites, um, Top Chef Houston premiered not long ago. And for those of you who are familiar with the show or have seen the show, you know um, just how good it is. Even after 19 seasons, it is sustained excellence um, with no drop off whatsoever in the quality of the show. Um, if you have not tried Top Chef, I encourage you. It airs every Thursday night at 8 o'clock on Bravo. Um, earlier seasons are available to binge and stream on a number of different platforms, I believe Hulu being one of them. Um, and, go on. And Peacock. Oh, yes, and Peacock, since it is an NBC Universal property. Um, and I will say, and I don't know how much you've watched because I know you've been under the weather like I have. Um, coming off of season 18 in Portland, which was what I call the Kumbaya season, and I talk about that with both Danine and uh, Gail coming up. I didn't know whether season 19 would be a letdown after such a warm, fuzzy season or if it would have a different feel, but I have been very happy with uh, the first several episodes, um, totally engaged with the, as they call them, chef testants, and I'm just as satisfied with the show and its uh, complimentary streaming sh uh, show, Last Chance Kitchen, as I am or have been for any other season. So um, if you're not caught up yet for on season 19, you should jump in and uh, catch it. Have you kept up or are you behind? Um, I've watched, I think all of them. Uh, the, I, I wish in the last episode where they were talking about brisket, since brisket is such an iconic Texas food that they gave a little more insight of, you know, how to make a good one. What were the seasonings that some of the chefs use, even though they're reimagined and it wasn't like, you know, a piece of brisket served with Texas toast and right. a side of beans. Um, it, it just to give people a better flavor of why and how, you know, Texas brisket really came to be would be, um, I think would have been nice. Cause I, I have a, uh, cookbook like the the legends of texas barbecue that goes into like the history of it which kind of flavors what you do at home whether you put it you know on your barrel smoker on a big green egg right you know people try and there is something elusive to creating that smoke ring around a great brisket i think the producers and magical elves and Danine as the showrunner have a problem they have an embarrassment of riches each episode that they have to get cut down to 48 minutes. So it's very difficult to, you know, entertain us, show the competition, give us some of that education that, uh, that you talk about with the brisket or, you know, any other, the different cuisines that are featured from week to week. Um, 
it's probably very difficult to get all that into 48 minutes. Oh, absolutely. Which is why, you know, in the beginning of the season, there is a little bit for anyone who watches all the time, you understand if there is a chef that is highlighted and someone else who barely gets any camera time, either those people who are on screen more often are either in the top or the bottom. If you don't see them on the screen, they're safe for another week. One other thing I should mention before we uh, listen to that interview with Dunning is purely accidental. I don't know if it's part of part of my lexicon when discussing um, Top Chef, but in both my interview with Dunning Arcanis and with Gail Simmons, that'll come up later in the episode, I asked them questions and reference it as part of my desire to know, to learn how the, the Top Chef sausage is made. So sausage accidentally becomes a recurring theme in this episode since those two interviews will be followed by a woman, Cara Nicoletti, who is actually a sausage maker and a butcher. So our, if this were an episode of Sesame Street, our um, theme or our special word for this week would be sausage. S is for sausage. There you go. Anyway, here is my conversation with Top Chef executive producer and showrunner Danine Arcanis. She has been with the show since season one, since the very beginning, um, started as a production assistant on the show and, and rose rapidly through the ranks and, and is now the woman who uh, guides the wonderful ship that is uh, Top Chef. So here is my conversation with Danine Arcanis. The Top Chef viewer, the Top Chef fan base is very, very loyal, also very vo- vocal. And they've got opinions on everything, but they also have questions on everything. So I thought I would um, ask a few questions about how the sausage is actually made, Mm -hmm. if you're fine with that. Um, And I guess I'll start with locations, because everybody within arm's reach of a social media account has an opinion on where you guys should shoot your seasons. How do you decide where you're the finals aside, the finales aside? How do you go through the process of picking your locations and how far out do you start that process? Um, I would say we start it a few months before we, um, maybe even like six months before we um, start shooting. And and there's a number of factors that go into it. Um, we look for regional diversity, like, you know, cause it's, I think you don't want to see two seasons that feel too similar back to back and, you know, food, uh, like I said, regional cuisines, are so diverse in America. And so like, you don't necessarily want to go Seattle and San Francisco back to back because those are very similar, Um, you know, so it's really trying to identify first those things, also big cities that we haven't been to yet. And, um, and then also it, I mean, I will say it helps that if tourism wants us to come and cause they're helpful in making things happen for us, you know, Um, being able to go to iconic locations. Cause you know, there's all these, the spread tape with everything when you go into any city trying to shoot, even in Los Angeles, getting right. permitted, all of that stuff. So um, being able to have people who want you there, want to help you get the things that you think will be cool to show America um, that like the enthusiasm from the places that we go also right. plays into it. Yeah. So now I'm in Atlanta. Nobody's listening. When are you coming to Atlanta? <laughs> I, you know, we've talked about Atlanta a lot. <laughs> Okay. I'm sure it's going to happen. Okay, good. There's that little small type disclaimer that runs in the credits that Bravo could have a voice or a hand in the decision. And 
people are often insistent that they affect the outcomes and they tell you who to have win because it's more beneficial or somebody's uh, a bigger villain or a bigger star. So can you dispel some of those suspicions? I can guarantee you that's not the truth. It's and Tom has done that. I, Tom did the same yeah. thing, but you know, you're the boss. Well, I thought a legal disclaimer. Every competition show has that, right. not just Top Chef. It's a legal uh, disclaimer. And I think, you know, if you ask any, you know, now that we've had all of these chefs who've competed on the show come back and be guest judges and all-stars, you know, joining the tiny panel, you could ask any one of them. I'm never saying, oh, but, you know, this person really should, you know, no, I'm, I, I ask them, who are you going to vote for? <laughs> um, but that's not, yeah, that's not the case. Every chef that you bring onto the show is obviously talented or they wouldn't be on the show. Um, can you talk about how you pare down what has to start as a very large list? And for example, season 19, how you get down to that 15? Yeah. Um, it's a little different these days now with zoom. Um, right. but, um, yeah, we basically, we have a casting team that starts very early in the process and they reach out to, you know, chefs and contacts in the food world. You know, we used to, again, back in the day, it used to be open casting calls and that's how, kind of how it all worked. But now it's more pointed. You know, we really are looking for people. We're looking for uh, references, basically, almost like a job. Like right. we're asking who, who do you think is good enough to compete, who do you think is ready for this kind of competition? And now that we've also had so many chefs compete on the competition, they kind of know who's ready. Um, and they're like, oh, I met this person at this food festival. They're fantastic. You should talk to them. So the casting team does all of that legwork and they kind of narrow it down to, I think, about uh, somewhere around 30 to 40 people, okay. which we then watch and, and kind of whittle it down from there. So Brian Malarkey told um, my podcast co-host that he leaned into being an antagonist on the show because it was good for his brand. So when, and readily admitted it and said it was really important. So when you're casting the show now after 19 seasons, what you, know, you and I are talking, you've already filmed the entire season 19. Um, do you think there's a high percentage of people who express interest in appearing on the show and competing on the show who are only out to attain celebrity chef status or is it still, in your mind, predominantly chefs that are purists that want to compete and want to want to have a platform to showcase their skills? I think it's a combination. I mean, I think you can't get past that today. You know, everything is like marketing up, you know. Um, you know, I think, like people have said in the past, even if you're eliminated first on Top Chef, just getting on to Top Chef does boost your visibility. So there's always going to be some of that. Some people are more outspoken about it than others. But I think for the most part, people really just want to compete. They want to see where they stack up against other chefs in the country. And that's the biggest, um, I think, answer that we get from a lot of people is like, I've been doing this for a long time. I know I'm good. I see my friends doing the show. I want to know where I stack, where I stack up. Season 18 in Portland had sort of a kumbaya feel to it, or at least that's what I, I labeled it. Do you feel that vibe was a byproduct of filming in a bubble and being isolated together and in a time when people were struggling as a whole, or was it just the luck of the casting draw? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both, but I do think also not even just filming in a bubble, which was definitely a very unique experience. Um, that was kind of the first time we were coming out of our own bubbles at home. You know, 
like uh, up until that point, I hadn't been in a room with that many people in the past year, you know? And so when, and I think Sasha said it the best in the second episode. And she was like, I don't know how to be around people. You know, like I've been in my house this whole, <laughs> this whole year. Like what, what do I do? How do I act? And I think, I think people were just so excited to be around other people that that kind of played into it as well. With Top Chef Houston premiering and filming obviously completed, can you talk about your macro reflections on the season and what people have to look forward to and takeaways that you may have maybe different feelings that you came out of season 19 with that you haven't come out of previous seasons with? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, like you mentioned that season 18 was the Kumbaya season. I do think that there's a lot of friendships and really great friendships that were forged in this season. But I also think that there was a stronger level of competitive competitiveness against our cast or if, if with our cast, I'm speaking, not saying this right. No, I know. <laughs> they had a very strong competitive will and competitive drive that I think I, I enjoy. I personally enjoyed because for me, it's like, these are challenges and you want people to want to win them. And it's not, you know, not like, oh, good for you. Like, I want to win. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's a little bit of that um, more than there was last year. Um, not that nobody wanted to win last year, but I just think, you know, there's just a little bit more. Um, and I just think people will be surprised by Houston. I think um, people just assume Houston is some certain way because it's in Texas. And I don't think that what they think of Houston is necessarily the truth. I asked this question of Gail, Padma and Tom, and all three answered it very, very specifically with no hesitation. You're holding a dinner party tomorrow night and you have one top chef alumni that you can bring in to cook for your dinner party. Who is it? And it can be a different person for dessert than it is for the, the dinner itself. Oh my gosh. And all three of them answered, none hesitated. So I, I'm like, I have, well, okay. So I live in Los Angeles. So there's like lots of alumni here. And I'm like, okay. I go to Antonia's restaurant all the time. So I'm like, right. oh, she wants, if I want Italian, I'm going to go to Antonia. I'm like, if I want, uh, I'm like, if I want something good and spicy, I want to go to Gregory. Like there's people I think that like I would go to for specific meals. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> so in other words, you're going to dance around that question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, I have to ask it. And we are back. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Donnie Aquinas, the executive producer and showrunner of Top Chef. Um, so, Christine, we obviously are in the midst of an episode where we're featuring uh, interviews with uh, two key women on Top Chef, which leads into the theme of great television food shows. Um, and I wanted to mention, because it was just announced in the last 24 hours of this taping, that season five of Somebody Feed Phil is dropping on Netflix May 25th. And we featured in my interview with Phil on this particular foodcast uh, last summer. And I look forward to doing it again at some point um, during season five or six of his show. Season five that's dropping in late May is... Uh, going to feature Phil's visits to Oaxaca, Mexico, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, Helsinki, Finland, and Madrid, Spain. So he apparently was able to get out and about more globally um, as the pandemic um, 
receded a little bit. And since I consider it to be the most joyful hour of television that I've seen in years and wait with bated breath for it, I, I'm thrilled to death that uh, Phil and somebody feed Phil are returning in late May. And then, um, as you know, because you also follow the show and have a good relationship with the principals on the show and have chatted many times with its host. Um, I think you mentioned that to me off air that Master Chef is returning in May as well. Yeah, Master Chef's returning. I believe it's May twenty fifth. Same so day. So more, yet more Gordon Ramsay um, and Aron Sanchez. Uh, you know, guiding some home cooks to find their place in the professional food world so those it's always nice for people to kind of you know see what normal people can do and you know even if some of the people from um, previous seasons of master chef maybe are not working in a professional kitchen there are programs uh, i think there's a website called eat with me i think that's correct um where a lot of the former contestants will host dinner parties either in their home or in a, a local spot where you can go and they'll create a five course meal for you know a group of six people and talk about their experience and what they learned. And, you know, you get to experience their food, which is a little different than say going to one of the Caesars properties and sitting in the uh, restaurant version of Hell's Kitchen. So it kind of gives people that interaction between what they see on screen and real life, which, you know, a lot of people really like. Yep, absolutely. And actually, there's an interesting crossover, now that you mentioned uh, Master Chef with Top Chef. On an uh, episode of Top Chef Houston a couple weeks ago, where the quick fire was um, rooted in creating dishes inspired by an Asian market, Houston's Asian markets, Christine Ha um, was one of the local chefs featured preparing dishes and, and providing that inspiration. And I believe she won master chef. She's a blind chef. She won master chef. She's a blind chef. I believe she won during season three, about 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah, so she was one of the winners and, and one of the more successful ones that have come out of that show. Um, I, you, you picked up on that better than I did. That must have been one of the days where I was a little asleep at watching TV. <laughs> yeah, I, re I recognized her as soon as they said her name. I was like, wait a minute. I, I remember her and I, I thought she had won MasterChef. And yes, I had to look it up to make sure she had won. But um, it turns out she was the winner of season three. And I, her story is a, a fascinating one that um, it would likely be worth exploring for us on a, on a future episode. But that, <laughs> that MasterChef crossover with uh, Top Chef was very fitting right there. Um, staying on the subject of food television shows, we should roll right into our next interview, which is one that I had recently with Gail Simmons. This is um, the second time I've chatted with Gail. I, I, I think I probably say this about every interview that I do, and, and you say the same thing about most of the interviews that you do, but I could sit and chat with Gail for hours. She's so warm and so engaging and, and just so passionate and enthusiastic about, you know, the topic of food, obviously, and being, being able to talk to her again with the, the launch of uh, season 19 and Top Chef Houston and learn a little bit more about how filming went for, for this season 
and how it compared to last season in Portland during the pandemic when they were totally in a bubble and some more about the, um, the, how the top chef, top chef sausage is made um, is always informative and educational. And, and I enjoy doing that, but um, I also have fun. I put her on the spot in this conversation as you'll hear. And I asked her what Tom Colicchio and Padma Lakshmi, um, what their worst habits are on set and what she thinks they would say are Gail's worst habits on set. So we had some fun with that too. Um, but Gail is the part of the foundation of top chef, that amazing franchise and her Gail and uh, her Padma and Tom are, um, my mind irreplaceable as hosts. It's not like American Idol or some other shows where they're the hosts become interchangeable parts or America's got talent. I don't think, and I think Gail um, talks to this in our conversation. I don't think top chef is what it is. If you start replacing those three. I agree. I think if one of them leaves the show's over, it's just not going to work. Like they're sewn into the fiber of the show in my mind at this point. Yeah. Especially after 19 seasons. Yes. Okay, so let's take a listen. Here is my conversation with Top Chef judge and host, Gail Simmons. So I always like, when I'm talking to people from Top Chef, I always like to help listeners and readers learn more about how the Top top Chef sausage is made. Um, Yeah. To that end, when you're heading into a new season, do you research or learn about that season's chefs before filming begins, or do you prefer to know nothing about them? No, we know nothing. And it's not even that we prefer. Yes, we prefer it that way. But it's also that's how we need it to be. I don't want to know that much about them. We get their bios the first day, first week on set. Um, You know, first, like maybe the the night before, two days before. And their bios are quite succinct. We don't get their whole resumes. Tom sees some of their resumes more thoroughly in the process. But ultimately, the three of us get like a paragraph top line info about each person basically uh, where they're from, the restaurant they cook at, and big highlights about their experience a day or two before. I, don't, I, I think knowing too much would give us preconceived notions, would give expectations, and we just don't want to have that in order to do the job. Well, and it's interesting along those lines with Top Chef Portland last season, the fact that Gabriel had worked for Tom at one point and, and actually well, reminded us on every out. episode. Yes. Well, true. But, but um, we find out that stuff. I mean, Tom knew that in advance and we purposely disclose all of that stuff in the beginning of the season. There's definitely been chefs in the past who I've had relationships with, like in terms of known them, cooked with them, been in an event with them or worked with them. You know, I worked for Danielle Ballou for many years and we've definitely had chefs who've gone through his kitchen and we were there at the same time or Things like that. I, you know, in in a very early season, I want to say season four, there was a contestant who I worked on the line with at Le Cirque eight years before. So, you know, we always disclose that information. Um, But, you know, we don't necessarily need to know it far in advance, and it certainly doesn't affect the way we judge them. So when you sit down in that first episode and start tasting the new chef's foods, do you ever, in, in throughout 19 seasons now, do you ever taste a Chef or Three's foods in that uh, 
what they've cooked in that first episode and say to yourself or even say to Tom and Padma, this person's going to be around late into the competition just based on first impressions? It's sort of fall in love at first sight. Um, yes and no. We are not, there's no hubris in the work we do in that like we are not soothsayers. We can't predict the future. Uh, we all can tell from that first meal generally who the strongest cooks are uh, and who we think are going to go far. But we definitely can't tell you that that's actually always going to happen. Uh, we can't, and we certainly can't predict the winner because all it takes is one bad dish and you're out, right? There's plenty of chefs who uh, I think could have won, but right. went out early because they cooked a bad dish or they were the front of house at restaurant wars or, right. you know, so, so yes, we, we definitely can tell who's got the magic, who's, who has like some really great talent. We definitely get excited by that first meal thinking, oh, I can't wait to eat more of this person's food, or this is so interesting, I want to know more about this, or I can see that this person has the chops, but that certainly doesn't mean they're going to make it to the end. I mean, you think about, well, there's so many examples, but like even Kristen, who was the judge on that first season, right. you know, she was eliminated in Restaurant Wars. She came back to Last Chance Kitchen, but there was a good chance she'd be gone for good, and so. So there's too many variables, obviously. Too many variables. Yeah. It's, a, it's a game. Um. How long does it take you to learn everyone's name? And do you keep a cheat sheet? <laughs> yes, we have a cheat sheet. There's just no possible way that we could walk in and know everybody's face to name that first day. But it, it's pretty quick um, because we say their names over and over. We look at that sheet. We have them standing in front of us and we want to respect them and, know, and let them know that we are um, serious about them and we care about their work. So... I would say by episode two, we pretty much know who everyone is. You, Padma, and Tom have worked together for a long, long time, and mm -hmm. you're like family, and you know each other really, really well. Mm -hmm. What are Tom and Padma's most annoying onset habit, and what might they say yours is? I don't know what they – okay, hold on. First question, <laughs> their most annoying onset habit. Well, uh, Tom is easy. He tends to put his hands in front of his face when he talks. He talks like this. Okay. So uh, with it's idiosyncratic, right? He doesn't like mean to do it. So he's always talking like this to the chefs and like to us. And so Padma and I are always, uh, you know, kicking him under the table, moving his hand away because our producers are saying, Gail, can you just tell him to move his hand away from his face? You know, we can't hear him. We can't see his face. We need his, his muffled. So that we, we all joke about. Um, Padma, I can't really think like most annoying have it on set. I don't find her annoying. I don't know. Um, Do you ever tire of her puns? I love them because I live in the pun world. But do, do those? Mean, we know that they're that they're often like you know. Sometimes she's forced into not forced into, but sometimes you know they're a collaborative effort. I think Tom's puns Tom's puns are worse because we just joke that he makes like the worst dad jokes in the world. <laughs> um, you know, her puns are like part of the hosting job. Um, no, I mean, sometimes I like have to roll my eyes at her complaining about her waking because I'm like, yeah, supermodel, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's, that's the worst I could think of. Um, uh, and mine, what would they say is mine? I don't know. Sometimes I think they think I'm like too chipper. Uh, 
I'm not a morning person, but I'm, I am like generally uh, like less, I'm like up, you know, I can be upbeat when they're like, can you just stop smiling so much? I don't know. I don't know what they say. Like, I would be curious. Okay. You ask them those questions. I'd like to know what they say. No, this cycle, I'm going to ask the same question. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like interesting. I'm sure there's things I haven't thought of. I'm sure I do plenty of annoying things. All right. I had to ask because it's always, it's a fun Interrupt them, interrupt them at judges table because I get excited about something. I don't know. Okay. I'll, I'll ask the same question of them. Can you reflect on the time you spent filming in Houston? the city, its food, your experience there, and also not on the show, not from the chef testants, but the best thing you ate while you were in Houston? Sure. Uh, it's big. Uh, I had a lot of feeling when we were in Houston. It was a, it is, remains, but when we were there, you know, the, a, a tumultuous time in the history of the state, uh, but we were not there to be part of the state conversation we were there oh i mean that's not entirely true, but we were really we were in houston right this is a season about houston not about the state it is in and um so i was really happy to support the people of houston the women of houston um and the food and restaurant industry in houston which has had just as hard a time as any other their employment in the restaurant industry the struggles that that industry has been through um you know houston is the most diverse city in the country it's the fourth biggest city in the country so it was due time for us to be there and, and explore it. I had never been to Houston before. I went in with definitely misguided perceptions about that city. What um, kind? Well, I just didn't realize the richness and the depth of its immigrant populations and how those are the populations that inform the way that Houston eats. It's not about uh, just, I don't know, cattle and and Tex-Mex, although I love Tex-Mex and it is a big part of their culture and after all, was a part of Mexico for a long time and, and that is very important, but it's so much more than that, right? Uh, it's Nigerian population, it's Vietnamese, Chinese, Indian, Thai populations. Um, you know, I just, I loved getting to know the history of the city, the city, you know, it, it's connection to Galveston and to Juneteenth. It's, it's very obviously it's roots in the black population that that built it physically. Um, and so uh, I, I think that was really the story we wanted to tell. And I think through food, you're really always able to do that well. And the season will be no exception. Um, I also love that we, you know, could dig into like things like football and some incredible, incredible uh, women trailblazers who all came out of Houston and Texas and really changed America in so many ways. I love that we got to hang out with astronauts because of course that's where NASA is based. Um, so, you know, it's really dynamic as a city is my point. Uh, the best things I ate off camera, I mean, there were lots. We were lucky to have some amazing uh, guides, some amazing chefs from Houston who really took us under their wings. I spent, you know, four out of seven nights a week, pretty much uh, with Chris Shepard and Rebecca Mason and, um, you know, some of the, the great chefs of Houston and they forced me to eat a lot. Uh, my favorite bite, um, I don't know, crawfish and noodles uh, is an incredible place. The chef was on with us on our premiere episode sitting right beside me. And I just loved hanging out with him and visiting him at his restaurant. He started, you know, the, the Viet Cajun 
he really was like a pioneer of Viet Cajun, which I thought sounded like this made up fusion, but it is real and it is beautiful. And, uh, and, and he made it what it is in Houston. Uh, so that was exciting. Crawfish noodles was amazing. Um, I love, you know, the rivalry of Tex-Mex food there. Um, you know, you're always on one team or another of the best fajitas in Houston. <laughs> um, so that was exciting too. Um, God, we ate a lot. I mean, Chris Shepard runs some of the best restaurants in Houston. And I love learning, you know, about the history of Houston through his restaurant, UB Preserve. Uh, uh, the dishes that made Houston what it is. So, yes, there was a lot of good food. Mm. The markets, too. Like, just Central Market alone, which is like an incredible supermarket, but then the Houston Farmer's Market. And, you know, we did it all. Top Chef Portland had what I call a kumbaya vibe to it almost from start to finish and based on the season premiere of top chef houston it appears as an edge has returned to the competition can you share your thoughts about this season and how it unfolds i know what you mean uh we were in the depths the throes of the pandemic when we shot the portland season um and we also were battling the wildfires in Oregon um, and the political unrest of the city at the time. Um, so, so I think we all were thrown into really unprecedented circumstances for the time that we were in Portland. And that led to perhaps what came across as like Kumbaya. I don't think it was less competitive. I don't think the food was any less extraordinary and, um, you know, uh, sort of, the stakes weren't any less high right. in Portland. In fact, in ways they were higher because the person who won, it gave them the money to literally keep their business afloat. I mean, and all of them that, that won in many ways and whatever they were able to do from the platform of Portland um, really kept their restaurants and their businesses and their employees and their opportunities and careers alive uh, because it was that destitute at the time that right. we were there. Um, but, but, there's a lot of those same things still happening. And yes, we were out of the darkest moments of the pandemic. We weren't in such a closed bubble, but uh, every single contestant who came on Top Chef in Houston still was leaving their restaurants at an incredibly unstable time and, um, and didn't know what the future would bring. Many of them had to close their restaurants during the pandemic. And I think you'll hear all of their stories. Uh, you heard a little bit from Jackson in that premiere episode that he got COVID right before he was supposed to come on the show. Thankfully, he had recovered, but he still had lost a sense of smell and taste. And no one knew. In fact, we didn't know that. I can't even believe they revealed it in the first episode because I learned it probably in like, the I, I don't know, way later on in the game. Someone was like, remember Jackson? He, yeah, of course. We all, like, we all know how, how, how he cooked along the way. And we all had no idea many episodes in. Uh, so, that came out later. Um, so those things were narratives that really run the way that they treated each other, that they talked about food, that they cooked together. Um, sharing those stories, I think, are still incredibly relevant to the season. But I definitely think they came with a little less uncertainty in their lives. And that helped, I think, to, um, you know, propel them. In many seasons of Top Chef, there are at least one chef who cooks, runs their life, lives in that particular city, in the host city. Yeah. Do those chefs have 
a distinct advantage of any kind in your mind being on on their home turf, having a home game, so to speak, even though, yes, they're still in a restaurant or the house, I mean, in a hotel or a group house or whatever. Is there any advantage to somebody who cooks in that city and, and runs has is professionally involved and lives in that city being on that, that I mean, season. Yeah, I understand the question. Um, theoretically, sure. They know the history, they know the ingredients, they know, um, you know, the geography of the city, they know, uh, but, but that, I mean, it doesn't play into how good a cook they are. Right. It doesn't play into if they're able to think on their feet fast. Um, it's not like we allow them to phone a friend, you know, right. uh, and reach out to fellow chefs in the city to help them. They can't order their own produce from their insider purveyors. Uh, they still have to shop at Whole Foods and live in the house with everyone else and cook in the same kitchen. So I, I'm not sure if it does. I, I think there are moments certainly on this season I noticed where um, when we have local chefs come on, uh, they know, um, you know, they know and certainly are cheering for the local chef. But that's why there's five of us this season always, but at least always four people at judges' table because it's never going to – you can't win because of it, you know. Right. It, it's not – it's too subjectively. The next season you film, presumably this fall, will be season 20. From your vantage point, how has the show sustained excellence for 16 years, which is an eternity in television? It's an eternity. I can't believe that we are going into our 20th anniversary. Uh, it's, it's 16, 17 years, but 20 seasons. Um, you know, I think some of it's fairy dust. A lot of it is Donine uh, and her team and the Magical Elves and Bravo who give us a long leash and engage us in the conversation so that it is really collaborative. You know, they run the show, but they always come to us for our opinions and they care about the industry. And as much as they're television makers, they feel, especially, you know, Donine and, and her team of producers, I think really feel part of the restaurant industry at this point. And Donine is like an encyclopedia. Uh, she's our, our showrunner, as you know, and she, she started off as a PA on yeah. our set, season one, episode one. So there's just no one who cares more for the show. It's her life. And uh, she was a baby. I was almost a baby, but she was really a baby <laughs> when we started out. And so we've grown up on the set as much as our audience has grown up watching us. And uh, I think that's really a piece of it. And then the other piece of it is that we we never do the same thing twice. We're always in a different city. We always move somewhere else for the finale. We never do restaurant wars the same way. So we give people an ounce of the familiar, but a really large splash of change and innovation every time. And I think that like there's a lot of competitions that, for example, take place in a studio. So the backdrop's always the same. The taglines are always the same. And sure, Padma always says, your time starts now and pack your knives and go. But everything else is completely unscripted and completely, um, you know, open to the universe. And so we all come every season with a thousand ideas. And, you know, I just think we all really care about the work we do. And that's what keeps it fresh. You don't ever walk away from a season after the grind of a 
you know, filming for an extended period of time. So, you know what, maybe I'm done. Maybe I've had enough. It's time, time to pack my knives and go home. No, uh, there certainly has been moments, fleeting moments over the years where I've thought like, mm, do, is the ship going to sink? Do I want to get off? You know, do I want to <laughs> jump, walk the plank before it sinks? Uh, but it just never sinks. Uh, and so I just, every year I come out of it just impressed with what we're able to accomplish and do. I remember so clearly uh, going into season 10 being like, season 10 is a nice round number. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll all end on a high note. Not so much that I was going to walk away, but that I was like sort of uh, bracing myself for Bravo to say, all right, guys, great job. You know, uh, nice run. Exit stage left. We're going to wrap it up. Exit stage left. Here's the cane to pull you off. Um, and that was season 10. And we're going into season 20. So I don't know. I, I used to feel like, you know, I want to I wanna get out and I don't want to be pigeonholed into Top Chef. And then it'll be too late to ever do anything else. But number one, that isn't happening. All of us, Tom, Padma, and I, but everyone else who do many other things yep. um, besides it. And this show has afforded us so many beautiful opportunities, but also um, at this point, you know, 20 seasons in, we're just in it. We're in it for the long haul. Like we've shown that we love it. It's our home. And I just, I, I don't think the show exists in another version at this point. Right. It's not like they can pull Tom Padma and I off and yeah. like put in three other people the no, way they did. I'm like, um, you know, I don't know, like, what show where they just like put in a new, you know, Roseanne just put in a new, uh, what was her daughter's name? Like one year that just, yeah. there was a different person playing that oh, role. Oh, multiple Beckys. That's right. Multiple Beckys, right. Like, I don't think it works that way with Top Chef. So, you know, at this point, I think we're all, we all feel really invested. I mean, we've been invested for a long time. So you'll keep showing up until they change the locks. Sensibly. <laughs> I mean, it depends. Obviously, the world is in a crazy place. But uh, but for the for the moment, I, I don't feel like we're going anywhere fast. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gail Simmons, one of the uh, hosts and judges on Top Chef. And again, if you are interested, Top Chef Houston airs Thursday nights at 8 p.m. on Bravo. So, Christine, you were talking. We were talking earlier about um, the many foods that you get to try and snack foods and you went on your um, extended uh, soliloquy about the, the blueberry muffin Kit Kat bar. Um, you wrote another piece recently about one of the many national days, and it brought back some memories from my childhood, and that was National Twinkie Day. Who doesn't love a good Twinkie? Me. Really? <laughs> Another thing we find out about Brad well, the, uh, that he doesn't like. Well, see, now here's the problem. This is one of those cases where as a kid, and I was not the large mammal as a kid that I am as an adult, but as a kid, I was addicted to Twinkies. Between Twinkies, which is the, if, if there's a greater sugar rush on the planet, I'm unaware of it. Between Twinkies and Ding Dongs with the uh, aluminum foil, um, Wrapper and snowballs, all hostess products, and snow snowballs where you would peel the the shocking pink layer of coconut off of it and then eat the cake underneath with the cream filling. 
I to this day still love snowballs and will grab one if I see it somewhere, whether it's a Walgreens or whatever, because it's not as widely distributed. And ding dongs are still the best. But I overdosed on Twinkies as a kid and probably have not had one in about 45 or 50 years. And just seeing the picture of it now is so the cloying sweetness just hits me even visually. Oh, you know, the, one of the things that I love and I don't go to state fairs often because, well, just not my thing, but deep fried Twinkies with some powdered sugar on top. There's nothing better. That seems a little unsophisticated for the normal Christine palate. No, every once in a while, you got to have that, like, just really bad you know it's going to hurt in the morning food but you enjoy it in the process well yeah because it's you know it's not like not something you're going to eat every day so you, you go for it it's better than a churro i mean if i'm going to choose at a you know a fried food thing you can get a churro i can make my own churro i can't make deep fried twinkies really well even better deep fried twinkie on a stick because food is always better on a stick hot dog on a stick Corn on the cob on a stick, satay on a stick. I know. It's something fun about being able to, first you have food, then you have a weapon to snap someone who says something incorrectly. All right. I think you need some, <laughs> some either serious introspection or therapy or both at this point on that. Well, you know, every once in a while when you're, you know, at a food festival, you need space around people. So just take we haven't learned in the past two plus years give people their space so maybe that stick is your your measure you're standing too close to me so if anybody ever sees christine at disney or universal or a state fair and they suddenly feel the jab of a skewer in their ribs they shouldn't be surprised well they were probably standing too close there you go so i mentioned your that being an unsophisticated um reflection of your palate a more sophisticated portion of your palate or anybody else's would be the groundbreaking sausages that our next guest, Cara Nicoletti, produces through her Seymour Meats and Veggies. They are the only nationally distributed meat company, and they are owned and operated by women, which is thematic to this episode and coming off of uh, Women's History Month. Um, Cara is a fourth-generation butcher. She's an acclaimed chef and she's a writer and she has built in just over two short years, a veggie forward meat company. That's not only on a mission to thrill palates and thrill customers, but make it easier and more fun to eat. Um, they're changing the game when it comes to sausage by combining humanely raised meat with up to 35% fresh vegetables. And that's where your sophisticated palate comes into play, Christine, because some of their flavors include loaded baked potato Bubby's chicken soup, broccoli melt, and chicken parm. So you can have your meat and veggies without sacrificing any of the deliciousness. And if you haven't tried it yet, Christine or people listening, you can. And you can uh, enjoy a little discount in the process by visiting Eat Seymour. That's E-A-T-S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com. And use the code excuse me 15 for 15% off your first order. That's eat Seymour, C-S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com. Use the code, excuse me, 15, 
Get 15% off your order and try some of the uh, delicious, healthy, fun flavors that uh, Cara has uh, created at uh, Seymour Meats and Veggies. Which of those flavors uh, would be first in line on your wish list? Well, you know, I, I was thinking about that as you read those. And I think maybe in my household, since vegetables are a struggle for some of the men around here, <laughs> it might, you know, if you can entice them with a juicy, supple sausage, you know, you got to go for the one with broccoli because how they're not going to turn down a sausage yet. There's some vegetables hidden in there, too. So it's a win win for everybody. So, Christine, on the topic of sausage and before we... Uh listen to my interview with uh, Cara. Are you a sausage person? There are sausage people that's like, oh yeah, yeah, I like an Italian sausage on my pasta. And then there's people that the sausage biscuit in the morning and sausage breakfast sausage and sausage, nine different, different flavors, whether it's apple sausage or turkey sausage. Where do you fall on the sausage meter? Um, well, Based on what I just said a few minutes ago, I think it's kind of apparent that sausage is uh, a, a huge food in this household. Uh, everything from the breakfast sausage with hash in the morning and some eggs to, you know, grilling a bunch of different kinds uh, on the weekends, you know, whether it is a good Polish or, you know, something a little more adventurous that maybe is like a mango habanero turkey sausage. I mean, it, it can be anything. I think the, the benefit of a sausage is that it allows you to be a little adventurous, you know? Sure. It's, it's not like a hot dog where people go, what the heck is inside it? Because you can actually see what's inside it. Right. And then, you know, when you have that bite, you, you taste it too. So, you know, whether it's grilling season or you just want something easy to eat, I think, you know, there's always room for sausage. Instead of uh, sitting here and describing everything that Kara uh, does through Seymour Meats and Veggies, why don't I instead introduce that interview so she, we can learn a little bit about her, um, her journey and the origins of her Seymour Meats and Veggies. And there's some fun elements in the interview too, including um, some national recognition that she got from Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop over the holidays that uh, <laughs> is a uh, fun and surprising part of my conversation with her. So let's take a listen to my recent conversation with Cara Nicoletti. Any conversation about your journey has to start with your grandpa, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. How did his example influence your decision to turn from baking to being a butcher? Well, I really grew up in the meat industry. Um, you know, obviously watching my grandfather, but I'm also fourth generation. So also watched my great grandfather. Um, and it was just kind of part of my upbringing. Um, I never thought that I would pursue it, but when I found myself working in restaurants, um, it turned out to be the thing that I gravitated to and kind of couldn't get away from. I think it was uh, very familiar to me, but I, you know, when I started working in restaurants, I was sort of right away very disillusioned with the amount of waste that I was seeing, particularly in meat fabrication, um, because it was such a big part of my upbringing, right. witnessing, you know, you don't waste any part of the animal. Uh, so that was kind of the reason that I found my way back to it, to sort of find a way to help people eat meat a little bit 
more carefully, more responsibly. And so that goes hand in hand with him saying that you revolutionize, revolutionize <laughs> the sausage business. Yes. Well, Seymour is, he speaks in hyperbole. but I'll take it. Um, I mean, you know, you think about sausages, it's an interesting thing because it's sort of one of the oldest human made food products. Um, it's literally mentioned in the Odyssey. It's been around for like 4,000 years and there's been really very little innovation in it um, in that whole time. But it is one of the original like sustainability minded foods, um, whether or not people kind of knew that, um, you know, sausages were invented so that we could make whole animal butch- eating viable. Um so when he says I revolutionized the sausage industry, I would say the bar was kind of low. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what you and you've come out and you've said that women make really good butchers. So can you tie in having said that with talking about being a woman in a male dominated industry? Yeah, I mean, you know, because it was something that I grew up my whole life witnessing, you know, it's not like I had I was look I was witnessing butchery. I was in the meat industry, but I didn't have any female role models in it. So, you know, I knew going into it sort of what the, the tone would be. Um, but I found over the years, I mean, I had really, I'd worked with some really incredible men and I also worked with some really bad ones and it was really hard. Um, I think in the end, it made me better at my job in a lot of ways because I, felt such a need to prove myself um, and sort of just put my head down and work, which, you know, I don't necessarily recommend. I don't think is right, but I am glad that it made me into a great butcher. Um, I spent a lot of time in my off hours kind of reading about meat science and um, just dedicated a lot of time and focus to being as good as possible. And I found over the years that when I would train women, Um, to be butchers, I just had an easier time because they tended to like, listen and ask questions a little bit more. (laughs) Um, You know, like they, they weren't afraid to, to ask a question before they messed up instead of messing up and then saying like, I don't know what I did wrong. Um, But you know, a lot of butchery is very careful sort of meditative movements. And I think women in general tend to come at meat from like a more emotional perspective, um, I personally think meat is emotional. It's an emotional thing to eat meat. It's an emotional thing to cut meat. Uh, so I always found that that was something I had to like explain a little bit less when I was training women. So you segued into what my next question was going to be about having said that sausage making is meditative mm-hmm. for the average consumer or the lay person. I mean, for me, having a bowl of pasta is meditative. <laughs> we all have our own. <laughs> yeah. So, so talk about the, the actual, art, literally art of sausage making and how that becomes meditative to you? Well, I think, I think one of the things that I love most about it is that it is like, you're focusing on the usage of scraps. So you're turning all of these sort of undesirable, I guess, things into something really beautiful and compact and edible. Um, And when I say undesirable, I just mean like tiny pieces of scraps, tiny pieces of meat that otherwise wouldn't get used. Um, So I find sort of the puzzle of using all of those things that maybe wouldn't have gotten used. I find that very meditative, Um, but I also find the process. I mean, I find the process of butchery meditative, the process of breaking down a pig or a chicken or whatever. Um, And then you're mixing it 
And then the stuffing and the linking is really what like relaxes me the most because it's just repeated muscle movements that you just like at a certain point, you aren't even thinking about your body just does it. Um, it's very, it's very, I find it very pleasurable to see them all in a row, kind of the same size and um, minor, sometimes beautiful colors. I just think the whole thing is, is, is a great meditative process. Do you have OCD? <laughs> no, I was... it's been, no, it's not been diagnosed. And actually it's so funny because like, I would say in other areas of my life, and I always used to think about this when I was um, you know, getting the sausages ready to, to go in the shop, like in other areas of my life, I'm not organized. I'm, I can't, you know, even in business, like I have a business partner who's very organized for me, but there was something about like getting all of my ingredients together, chopping them to the right size, putting them in little pie containers, labeling them. Like that was the only area of my life where I was like very OCD. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because just, I mean, even seeing the product and as beautiful it is, whether it's yeah. on social media or on your website or in a, in the store presentation, the sameness, mm-hmm. and then you describing it as meditative, which is, yeah. I do, I, I asked the OCD question, not to be a wise ass, but. <laughs> to, no, to it's, ask, it's a fair question. I, um, yeah. I mean, and, and I think when I was baking in, in restaurants, I really liked the process of bread making um, and. I think that it's very similar to sausage making. Right. You're kind of, you're mixing it in the same way. You're sort of looking for the same visual cues. Um, so it made sense that I, that I went from sort of bread making into sausage making. That's interesting. So for uneducated people like me, can you talk about creating a sausage product that is vegetable forward and why that's important and why reducing meat consumption is so vital? Yeah. Um, well, I, I would say I started making these first of all, because I was working with these hull animals. They were so beautiful. They were local. They were everything you could ever want. Um, And our customers were just coming back like seven days a week. We couldn't keep up with the demand. Um, We were starting to kind of ponder getting like box commodity to supplement for the demand. And I didn't want to do that. I felt like it was counter to everything we were sort of working towards. Um, So I started trying to get my customers to eat a little bit less of it by making veggie burgers and putting them in the meat case, it did not work. Um, so I started sneaking those vegetables into the sausages I was making. You pulled and... the Jessica Seinfeld. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And this was, you know, 12 years ago or so. And, but really when I think about it, it's like, I think that a lot of people think of it as like eat less meat, but really what I was trying to do was get that really beautiful, good meat that we were cutting to more people at a price point that made sense. Like I was very frustrated that we were sort of selling to the same demographic of people over and over again, and that those people could like afford to care where their food came from. Uh, And I really wanted to widen that net. So sausages are sort of like one of the least expensive things in the case and adding tons of vegetables uh, made that meat stretch further. So it's scientifically a very difficult thing actually to put that percentage of vegetable into a sausage um like when you see a spinach and feta or something sausage in the store all of those ingredients are dried and they generally make up like one to two percent of the total Um, so we're using we're using up to 35 percent in seymour and really the reason that that's hard and the reason that people don't do it is that 
water is the enemy of protein extraction, which is meat binding. Um, So if you think about sausages, they're a bound meat product. You cut into them and they're a solid piece. Um, So when you're adding vegetables, which are just water in that percentage, it's interrupting that bind and you get kind of like a crumbly, icky experience. Right. Um, So it took me well over a decade to kind of crack the code on that in a natural way. It has to do with like, you know, the temperature it's mixed at, how big the vegetables are, what the vegetables are and what their water content is. Um, And we have seven flavors now at Seymour um, that I am very proud of. And I think they eat just like a normal sausage, but they have about 35% vegetables in them. So was was that the result of those 10 years you talked about? Or was there a 3 a.m. aha moment that (laughs) suddenly it struck you like, oh, wait, I didn't try this. No, it was, I mean, it was sort of something that I felt like I hit on. I, I realized pretty early on that I had come up with something. I just didn't know how to scale it. Okay. Um, you know, and it's, it's not like I reinvented the wheel in any way. Like fillers are a thing in sausage making. They're a dirty secret in sausage making. Um, and I kind of liked the idea of turning that on its head and saying like, but what if the fillers were good? Right. Um, and so, you know, what a concept, was, right? Yeah, exactly. What if it wasn't, you know, like hard tack or like pink slime or something, um, or even ice, but what if it was, what if it was vegetables? Uh, right. So I, I, I realized early on that I, I could do something with this. I just had no idea how, um, and in those 10 years, you know, like blended products started popping up on shelf, you know, Purdue and Tyson, they're all doing that now. And I was just like, I got to get this product out there because I know it's better. Right. I know it's less processed. I know the meat is better. Um, but it took me, even once I decided that I wanted to scale it up, it took me like a solid three years to really like get it. Interesting. And the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, so, we're, we're about to turn two years old, so yeah, we're still yeah. here. Um, so what exactly is a flexitarian diet? How do you take a flexitarian approach to creating your products? Again, this is me talking from being totally naive. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that uh, that it's a great question. I think it's it's a word that I'm pretty sure was only just added to the dictionary. So it's definitely a, a newish concept. I'm but, a writer and I hadn't heard it until I started yeah. learning about you. So. Yeah, it's, um, well, actually I hadn't learned it until well after I started making these sausages and people were like, this is flexitarian. I was like, oh, there's there's a word for this. But I think the way that people define it is just, you know, eating a little bit less meat, um, eating maybe mostly plant-based with, with some meat in there. Um, and it really is sort of the way that people are eating now. Um, we're seeing huge explosions in the plant-based sector, but people are still eating more meat than ever. So like what that tells us is that people are interested in lessening their meat consumption, but they're not giving it up entirely. So we see ourselves as kind of like that middle ground um, product. So from a consumption standpoint, actual taste, we've seen through the years, and I'm, I'm a prime example of this, as like veggie-based smoothies became bigger and bigger and more popular. But there is a, a large segment of the population that resisted at first, like, oh, I don't want kale or spinach mm-hmm. in with my fruit. I imagine that that same reaction might apply to veggie forward sausages. So can you talk about your flavor profiles and how 
you've been able to change those opinions once you've gotten people to try the, the product? Yeah, um, it was very, I, I love that question because it has a lot to do with um, what I'm talking about running marketing. Oh, see, and I felt day. sort of like stupid no. asking you. Okay. No, that's no, because the thing is, is that I'm seeing blended products now and the the focus really is like less meat, eat less meat. And really my message is like, just, I just want people to eat better meat. Um, but one of the ways that we sort of tackle the unfamiliarity of this concept is that we're presenting familiar flavors. I think something that people forget is that we eat meat and vegetables together all the time. They right. form dishes that we know and love. Um, so instead of just saying like, we're going to blend pea protein with regular chicken, or we're going to, you know, just randomly throw like quinoa and kale into your sausage. It's like, this is a loaded baked potato. This is chicken parm. This is chicken soup. Like, and those are all things that we know um, that naturally blend meat and vegetables together. So I think that sort of lowered the barrier of like entry and understanding a little bit. Um, I think there's also like tonally some, some like in room for improvement in the like better for you aisle in general. I think um, sometimes there's, like a judgmental tone or sort of a serious tone. And we're just trying to have fun with people. We're just trying to help them do a little bit better. Um, and it doesn't have to be that serious. It should be fun. See, and in that case, when you talk about chicken parm or loaded baked potato or whatever, that's sort of a dichotomy from the hiding the vegetables in the sausage. Yeah, no, we're celebrating. It's like, here's that. what it is. Here's what it yeah. tastes like. <laughs> Fear not. Yeah. When I was, when I was working in shops, the guys I was working with used to call me Willy Wonka because um, they, you know, I do you look at them dumb. purple? <laughs> Not really. Oh, okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. <laughs> but the, you know, it was like the four course meal or whatever, that gum, they would just be like, because it, you know, it really is a meal in and of itself. It's a meal in a casing. Um, but they are also really flexible to cook with. Um, I just think it's, I think people are looking for, for ease of preparation now too, especially when it comes to cooking for their kids. So this is kind of just something you can like put on a plate and it's meat and it's vegetables and like, you're good. When I prep for interviews, I'd usually do a deep dive into my subjects, <laughs> social medias. So I did for you in preparing this and I can't ask, I can't not ask you about a certain Instagram story of yours but as a guy, I need to tread very, very lightly into it so you don't oh, being inappropriate. Talk to me about Goop. Goop. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, what are we no, talking the, about? The, right the, 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 the two. <laughs> yes. Um, the two so items we, that that yes. were featured. We got a mention in Goop yesterday or the day before. It was like part of the Valentine's Day guide, um, and. It, it featured our like party pack of sausages next to a goop branded vibrator as like something that you could get your, I don't know, get yourself or get someone you love. But it was just the funniest thing to me. I mean, we're, we're a fully like women owned and led meat company, right. sausage company. So we know that like the jokes write themselves. And it was like, it was so, we, we all were just dying <laughs> that it was so funny. See, in the good old days, a, a gentleman would show up at the door with flowers and chocolate. And then now after seeing sausage. your Instagram, after seeing your Instagram story, it's like, okay, sausage. No, but 
I think maybe that's a present for that. Maybe that section was what you buy yourself. Oh, okay. <laughs> you guys are coming up on your second anniversary. Can you reflect on the first two years, share your, and then share your vision for the company, both short-term yeah. and long-term? Yeah. Um, I mean, we launched literally two weeks before the world shut down. Um, so we have never had an experience as a brand like that was normal. We were never allowed to go to trade shows or demo or do any of that. And it has made our first two years so much harder than I could ever communicate here. Like it is every single day has been such a challenge. Um, and I'm just so proud of us that we've made it for two years in these, this totally new landscape that nobody had any kind of playbook for. Um, You're definitely still, an outlier. Yeah, we're still, we're still here and we're still growing. Um, I would say in the short term, we have two breakfast sausage skews that should be coming out soon, which is very exciting to me. Um, and then in the long term, really, is the hope is to get away from sausage. We're starting to develop our first non-sausage product. Um, and we really just want to be sort of in every area of the meat section that you could get like a fully meat product. We want to offer a blended product. Um, so and how would that, in what form would that be if it was not sausage form? You know, we've got patties, you've got nuggets, you've got. Meatballs. Oh, okay. So yeah, the, like the natural. I mean, we can't, we can't ever replicate like a steak or anything right. home. Obviously. Um, but, but all kinds of value add foods we could kind of put our spin on, which is very exciting to me. And obviously you have a, a nice firm hold in Whole Foods up in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. At what point do they say, okay, this product sells for us and it sells in more than one store. It sells in a region. Mm-hmm. What Me here in the Southeast and other parts of the country, when will they expand your footprint? Are, Whole Foods, are you listening? <laughs> Please give us more regions. Um, we're in I mean, I was going to walk into my Whole Foods and say, hey, look, this <laughs> no, product. Seriously, that does help. It, it does help. Um, they, I think because of the last two years being so difficult in terms of supply chain, buyers in general are just like underwater and they're not really taking any risks. Um, So we've maintained all four of our regions, which is amazing. Uh, But we would love, we would love some more. And we have a launch coming up in the spring in Southern California with a bunch of target stores there, which Mm. hopefully will expand um, to more. And we just launched with imperfect foods, which I think delivers everywhere um thrive market soon so there's all kinds of e-com options too and we have our own e-com if you you can't get us um where you are but yes i hope whole foods is listening and (laughs) we'll take your advice and we are back hope you enjoyed uh, not only that conversation with cara nicoletti um (laughs) including the uh the adult themed goop portion of the interview um, but we hope you enjoyed the conversations with, uh, Danine Arkinas and Gail Simmons from Top Chef. And these conversations that we have are just the tip of the iceberg of many, many more that we have on the slate going forward. So we thank you for continuing to join us and hope you will subscribe, rate us, recommend us, share it with your friends. Um, so we will keep bringing you those those conversations that'll put the wraps on another episode of excuse me may have some more 
We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. Christine, it was nice doing this again after a, uh, about a month's uh, hiatus that was unintentional, unintentional and unenjoyable. It's good to hear your voice again and good to uh, talk food again. Good to talk to you. I think you've success, um, you've made me quite hungry to go grill uh, a sausage and maybe go light a candle at, afterwards and have an enjoyable evening. So you'll have to report back on that when we uh, meet again very, very soon. There you go. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, again, please subscribe to us on your platform of choice, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere you uh, get your podcasts. Tell your friends about us and uh, please join us again very soon. Thanks for joining us, Christine. It's been great. And we will do this again soon. Ciao, Brad. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.